Welcome to Temple Talks, a new podcast from Temple Israel in Minneapolis, where Jewish wisdom meets our ever-changing world. Join us as we talk with our favorite partners and thought leaders from around town and around the world. We hope these talks will inspire you, challenge you, and give us all new ideas about Judaism, religious life, and social justice. To everybody who is listening, this is Michelle Horvitz, and Michelle grew up here in Minneapolis, um, and actually grew up with my husband, Mike, and has been best friends with him since they dated in fifth grade, is that Yes, fifth, fifth, fifth grade. <laughs> I hear often about the um, movie date that they went on because Michelle's dad came in the convertible to pick up Mike, which very much <laughs> impressed Mike's mother, Nancy. Um, and maybe is why Mike's dad ended up getting a convertible. I don't know. <laughs> um, I love it. Uh, uh, but Michelle, you have been doing incredible work since you, so you, left Minneapolis for a while, you came back, you became a lawyer, you went back, you left again, you've had some back and forth. Yeah. And some really incredible work on the North side since, since you've been back here. Yeah, thank you. Um, it's so great to be on the podcast with you. And it's crazy because we, this April marks 11 years back in the Twin Cities, which I can't believe it's been that long, um, from Miami, um, Dade, County in Florida. It's been a weird road. Everyone asks, how did you get here from being a public defender to a line cook to like a side hustle catering gig to um, starting, you know, a food justice organization. Um, but now more than ever, I'm like, I am really excited to be called and to be able to do work around some of the issues that brought me to the work of the public defender's office, police brutality, systematic racism, and that's interwoven into our food justice work, of course, but um, through my membership on the board of JCA, Jewish Community Action, I feel like I get to have that outlet as well, too. It's good to be here. Michelle, my understanding, though, is that you really, the AFC really brings together your passion for both cooking food and um, social justice. And anyone who hasn't had the opportunity to eat what Michelle has cooked or what Breaking Bread has cooked is missing out. I can tell you that from personal <laughs> experience. Thank you. Yeah, it does. It is exactly the intersection of, of all of my life's work and passion. And, you know, I, while I can't take claim to any of the recipes at Breaking Bread, I do, in, uh, I do enjoy cooking on my own. Um, and uh, we are excited to reopen this summer. It's been a long um, time coming, um, but we are grateful for the opportunity to still keep people employed all during COVID and making meals. You know, we've never been about hunger relief per se, more about building capacity of community to use food as a tool to create wealth and, and health and social change in their community. Um, you know, but we, we listened to the community and that's how we were formed by asking community what they wanted and needed. And we continue to do that and continue to listen. And when this pandemic hit and after the murder of George Floyd and the um, you know uprisings and 
closures of grocery stores, like we were called to action. And so we've been doing participating in the Minnesota Central Kitchen Coalition, which is an amazing group of restaurants and chefs and nonprofits who've opened up their kitchens to, to make prepared meals, um, to get out into the community. Um, amazing partners at Second Harvest and Loaves and Fishes help make that happen. But um, yeah, we're just grateful to still be able to serve community and to fight injustice in our food system and to, to build more equity. Can you tell us a little bit about how AFC and Breaking Bread started and your, your connection to the North Side and um, kind of the story and um, those who you started it with? Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's um, crazy that it's almost been 10 years since we started programming. In February of next year, we'll celebrate 10 years of programming. When I moved back and wanted to do something in food justice, um, I started educating myself about what was already going on here. Um, my dad grew up on the north side and, um, you know, my parent, my grandparents both immigrated here. And I'm sure your listeners know the history of redlining and um, restrictive covenants and why Jews lived in North Minneapolis. But, you know, we were also part of that exodus and that white flight that happened in so many cities. And I don't want to be controversial or say that, you know, fear of black bodies, black and brown bodies is, is endemic. I think it's kind of the root of, of, of all evil of this country and colonialization and what native people suffered and what um, slavery meant for the founding of this nation, but it, it still persists. I think it's the basis for an officer grabbing her gun because she was afraid of a black body and thinking she, you know, wanting to think that she grabbed her taser. But, um, you know, the funeral for Dante Wright was across the street today at Shiloh Temple. Um, I'm looking out the window right now at Shiloh Temple and our team, uh, our advancement team communications and fundraising yesterday had a Earth Day team building celebration. You know, we planned it for weeks and weeks, didn't know that it was going to coincide exactly with the funeral, but we were digging up weeds and turning the soil and like preparing the breaking bread patio for uh, opening. And I know I'm not answering your question, but I will. And just like seeing the national media circus across the street and then later listening to the Reverend Sharpton's eulogy. Like it's just, it's all so surreal that we're at this inflection point of intense trauma on trauma on trauma, but hopefully as um, Keith Ellison said, an inflection point um, in strive in trying to actually have justice. Um, but rewind. Um, <laughs> Princess and Tasha and I met totally randomly, but fortuitously, um, I audited, I sat in on a class at Metro State on community psychology. Tasha did a presentation on her um, internship at the Tubman Center and said she was born and raised on the north side. So I just like instantly connected with her and learned that she was struggling vegetarian and a, a burgeoning urban farmer. Um, and Princess and I were introduced by a mutual friend and we connected over the loss of her son, Anthony, um, who was, um, had his life taken on July 4th on the North side to gun violence. And um, I had just had a miscarriage and, and we connected about, you know, her six-year-old daughter at the time saying, why is there no good places to eat on the North side where we live? But over South, where I go to school at Whittier, there's like French Meadow and the Wedge and Common Roots and all these things and like just instantly bonded with her but you know at the time 
wanting to use food as an organizing tool and, and learn about what interventions or programs might be helpful, we really felt like we had to ask the community. So Tasha and Princess, both African-American women, both Northsiders, but um, Princess from Chicago, she calls herself a refugee from Chicago and Tasha born and raised on the North side, even, you know, they didn't feel like they could speak for the entire community. So we brought people together to cook and meet at the cutting boards and at the um, stovetops and have conversation and dialogue about what change people wanted to see in themselves in their families in the community around food. But because food touches so many parts of our lives, we also learned a lot about what, what community members and young people want to see change in the broader society. If I remember correctly, you bring youth in to do gardening and work and training. And um, it feels like it's more than just a restaurant. It's really a community project in a lot. Totally. Yeah. And, and most people know us because of Breaking Bread, because we have catering, because we're a restaurant, it's great food. Chef Lachelle Cunningham was our, uh, our founding executive chef. And it's so great to see her around and, and growing and expanding because really that was an intention around the cafe and catering and the social enterprises themselves. And now our community meal program, where we used to do a little bit of community meals um, for housing or for youth programs. Now we're doing, you know, 10,000 meals a week through Minnesota Central Kitchen. So that's an added piece, but um, it's always been about leadership development, workforce development, you know, getting people to a place where they can go out and make more money. And if they're interested, climb the ladder, which can be a very great ladder to climb in food service management and hospitality. Um, it's obviously an essential part of our workforce, but there are more career paths than people think. And the minimum wage is rising in lots of cities and it's a great place for people, youth, people who've been incarcerated. I mean, one out of every two people in this nation had a job as a kid in food service or sometime in their life, but it's a great first job. It's a great way to re-enter the workforce. And um, we have urban farms that our youth work on. Um, so the Appetite for Change programming, our cooking workshops, our youth gardening and farming, the farmer's market, all of those things came first before the cafe, but obviously that's the brand that like folks know more of. Um, and it's great that we can be a holistic um, resource to the community. Um, we just built a, a greenhouse on the north side and we're doing some urban farming training for, for black growers who are um, you know, starting their businesses. So it's, it's, it's great to be working more upstream. Um, I'll never trade a day that I worked as a public defender, but being a cog in that system and being a part of the systematic oppression, it, it just where it wore on me so much emotionally. And it's, it's hard work what we do, but it's a lot more um, uplifting and hopeful. <laughs> and if I'm right, isn't there a story that you met your husband, Adam, because you were working in food services in law school, were you wa walking home from somewhere? Oh, yes, there is a connection there. Yes, Adam and I, well, so Adam and I both went to Herzl, but he was a few years older than me, so he didn't know who I was, but I, of course, knew who he was, and then I was in Ozo when he wasn't, he was not at Herzl that summer, and then he came back as an older college student to be staff, but I didn't stay on as a counselor. I was only an Ozo. So we didn't cross paths as adults at Herzl, but we were both at college together at Penn 
but he was a senior and I was a freshman and we didn't really cross paths too much, but we knew of each other at that point. Um, Cause his good friend is Dean Schaffer, who's from here. Um, and so then he went to DC and I went straight to law school. And when he ended up here at law school, he was a year behind me and he was looking for an apartment the summer before he started. And I was working at Levon on 48th in Chicago, 10 blocks South of where George Floyd was murdered actually, um, at a time when Jews did not wanna go over to 40th in Chicago, but they did because Stuart Woodman had just moved from New York and this was his first restaurant that he and his wife Heidi, who was the pastry chef were working at. And um, I was dressed like a man because we wore like very traditional black pants, black vest, white button down. I had my hair slicked back in a bun walking to my car and I saw him walking across the street. He was looking at an apartment nearby and I was like, Adam? And he looked at me like, who are, who is, who are you? Like, and um, I'm like, Michelle from Penn and Herzl. I go to law school here. He's like, oh yeah. So we reconnected as friends um, his first year of law school and started dating that, that later that fall. So, yeah. See, everything leads back to food. I know. And my parents met at Bernie's Deli, which was my great uncle, Bernie, my dad's uncle, who also lived on the North side, but like many Jews um, owned or ran businesses on um, in St. Louis Park. And so it was kind of like everyone knows them for the corned beef and the pickles. It was down the street from the Lincoln Dell, closer to Lake Bidet Makaska. Um, and it closed the year after I was born. So I never actually got to patron there, but my dad worked there, you know, behind the counter, bus boy, maintenance, everything. My mom was a server and it was a um, sour 17 party where it was not a sweet 16, but a sour 17 where the girls asked the boys and my papa, my mom's dad said, why don't you ask that nice Jewish boy from the deli? And she did. And so, yeah, it's like in my DNA, this restaurant stuff. It is definitely in your DNA. Mm-hmm. How, how, how is the community doing um, today, mm. right? We're post-conviction, um, but, uh, you know, Michelle, you and I were both at George Floyd Square on Tuesday evening, and there was so much talk about how we got to, the community got to rejoice on Tuesday, but on Wednesday, it was time to get back to work. As the Jewish community also really wanted to rejoice on Tuesday evening, but are also really conscious that we need to be partners in that work. And however the, um, the community of color tells us that they want us to be partners. As you said before, you know, in all of this, there was another, another young person whose life was taken for no reason. Yeah, Dante Wright. Um, yeah. And then, you know, it's just so I don't want to I'm going to get to the what I what I want to say, but you know, to just take a moment and say that on Wednesday, the day in between the, the Derek Chauvin verdict and the Dante Wright funeral, I believe it was the day of his wake, there were three separate news conferences in Tennessee, Columbus, Ohio, and I think South Carolina were three more, two, I think were young, you know, one was a teenager, another was a young, uh, young person, black and brown lives taken by police. I mean, it's, you just, it's a, it's its own pandemic. And I, and Eddie Glaude Jr., who's a brilliant academic um, 
professor at Princeton, you know, was saying the other day, like policing is at the center. It's at the heart of the issue. It's state, it can be, and has become, and was founded to be state sanctioned racism, you know, and research how police Google, how did police start in the U S it's, it's the, the congruence of, of our country's original sin. And um, the community is, like you said, um, a lot, most black people did not think it was gonna be a guilty verdict. Most white people did. So that tells you one thing. And, and one verdict is, is not justice, but it is a glimmer of hope. And like um, hopefully an inflection point, there is so much work to do. Um, a great, you know, Wednesday was also the day that the attorney general announced a Department of Justice investigation into the entire Minneapolis police force. And hopefully out of that comes a consent decree that actually has teeth, that actually requires change because they are gonna find a systematic practice of over-policing and police brutality. And, um, and the citizens of Minneapolis are gonna be able to vote in November about what they want the future of public safety to be. But reimagining public safety is real and it, it has to happen. Um, I think, you know, um, there's a piece in TC Jufolk um, and uh, written, I think written by NZ Tanner, um, staff at JCA that everyone should read. He's a um, black trans Jew and he did a spoken word at George Floyd Square that was, you know, I mean, say their names, there's so many names to say but hopefully, hopefully the, you know, George, the named policing act at the federal level can pass, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act can pass and, and we can start seeing, you know, there's 18,000 law enforcement agencies in this country. So obviously reform has to happen on the local, you know, city, county, state level, but it needs to happen from both sides so that hopefully we can, you know, have a reimagined public safety where people with guns are not reporting or showing up to mental health incidents, you know, issues of mental health. Um, yeah, I, so. I remember, you know, 15 years ago when I was in grad school and a good friend who uh, also was in law school in New York and um, is a, a public defender for youth now in Baltimore. And um, we were talking then when she was, you know, doing clinics and things like that. And she said to me, everybody keeps saying that the system is broken. The system isn't broken. The system is doing exactly what it was built to do. And it needs it to be. It was designed this way. It was designed this way. It is working exactly how it was designed. And it, That's needs, right. to be, uh, it needs to be completely reimagined. And that, that was a wake up moment for me as, you know, as a, as a young grad student about how, um, how backwards we are and how we are not living up to the ideals that many of us thought that the U.S. was built on. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's part of the education reform. I mean, I know there was like statewide debate about whether the Holocaust should be taken out of social studies curriculums. And it's like, okay, but what's never been in those curriculums? What has been the story of the founding of this nation? What, you know, I'm sure that this exists now, but when we were in school, you know, 30 years ago, when I was my son's age, 
fifth grade and I can't believe he's in fifth grade. And then, and Michael and I went on that date in first grade, like that just blows my mind. But (laughs) when I was his age, there weren't textbook children's textbook versions of a people's history, right? There wasn't, you know, by Howard Zinn, there was not, that's not the social studies that we were learning. And I think a lot of what I learned in law school about equal protection and and what's actually in our constitution, how the you know jurisprudence over time has, has interpreted that and applied laws that legislators pass, that that the cruxes of, of the systematic institutionalized racism and oppression of this country is is hidden in all of that, or not hidden, you know, sometimes it's very overt, but that's not taught in high schools across this country. If I got a tenth, a hundredth of the education on the constitution that I got in law school, in middle school or high school, I just think our youth would be so much better informed. I mean, that's like why programs like World Savvy um, is, you know, has to go into schools to teach kids about what's going on in the world so that they have more empathy and they understand systems um, and, and policy because they're just not learning that. I think faith organizations are also, um, faith communities are also taking Absolutely. that on a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. not just- Oh my gosh, I overheard, I overheard the jewel, the online Zoom jewel where like the fifth graders are talking about this, you know, talking about racism. That's important. They're talking about, you know, fairness and equity at Hebrew school, at Temple, you know? But what are schools doing? We're not sure. That's why. And, and, <laughs> and, and, and you know, when I talk to my colleagues in in different faith communities all around the Twin Cities, right? Not just Jewish. Um, everybody's kind of on the same page. Like we're not sure what they're getting in school, and we're not sure if they are learning what it really means to be a citizen of the world and of the community. Um, and so we're going to make sure that they know. Absolutely. I mean, and, you know, I mean, you see it with gun violence and what, you know, what Parkland and what um, those school shootings have activated the younger generation because it's really close to them and it really touched their lives. And that's huge. But we need these kids to also be the future folks that are going to stand up against the crazy voter suppression that's happening in states all around this country, these laws making it harder for certain people to vote. And I just heard recently this week that state legislatures are trying to pass laws that if you protest or you're arrested protesting, it's a felony or you can't, Minnesota is trying to pass a law that if you're caught, if you're arrested protesting, you can't, you can't get housing, food benefits, uh, scholarships for tuition for co- college scholarships that you're ineligible if you get arrested protesting. And I think Indiana's version says you cannot hold public office if you're arrested protesting. Like the heart of the Constitution, the First Amendment, right to f- free speech, right to assembly, like that's at the heart of who we are as a democracy and supposedly the best in the world. How are, how are we going to pass laws like this? And I, I think like our children are the, it's only going to get crazier what they try to pass. And these lawyers at ACLU and other places that are challenging, challenging these laws, um, it, it's, it's 
it's huge. So I hope that, you know, what, what's happened in our legal economy and what's happened to a lot of law firms and the lack of focus on social justice and public interest law at most law schools, I hope what's happening will shift that and, and kids will still be attracted to, you know, policy and advocacy work, litigation, you know, civil rights stuff um, and, and the issues that we're gonna need to fight in the courts, unfortunately. That never should be in the courts. That should just right. not be issues. They just should right. not be issues. Right. Like yeah. we should be able to have water while we're ha water handed out to us, and not have anyone think that they're trying to buy our vote by giving us food or water while we wait in line to exercise our you know constitutionally provided law to you know uh, ability to vote that shouldn't have to go through a court battle to, to be able TSA to TSA is now allowing sunscreen to go through security, but you can't drink or eat while you're waiting in line to vote. Oy. The world, the problems that we are um, looking to the next generation to solve. But I know, I know, not to, not to even mention climate change, but they're all so energized, it seems like, and I'm hopeful because you have like teenagers that are leading these movements and um, and making their voices heard, even folks that are too young to vote. Yeah, and I think they are also changing the minds of adults, and they are bringing, totally they are bringing their grownups along with them in their mm -hmm. fight, and that's really mm -hmm. what's going to bring change. That's that's what happens with food too. By the way, is we work with young people who want to change their their food habits and eat differently and cook more at home and not drink as much soda or whatever. And you find, we find they like call out, you know, calling out their parents, asking to get different things at the grocery store or, or like saying, should you be eating that? Like, didn't we do, you know? So it's, it's just interesting because it is really like young people that, that need to bring, like you said, bring the grownups along. That's amazing. And a lot of the food that you cook with at Breaking Bread um, is from the garden. That is, yeah, in garden, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, we have we have six farm sites um, across North Minneapolis. We also have a, a plot out in rural Minnesota through our partnership with the food group. So the youth get to leave the Twin Cities a little bit and see, you know, a larger farm operation um, and and get to be in the dirt in that space. And it is really healing for them. And you know, something you know, we probably don't think of or wouldn't have thought of um, as white people, as a white person, I wouldn't have thought of this like right away. Um, asking young people to, to farm, you know, there's a historical trauma there around farming and slavery and, and like a perception that it might actually be more traumatic or triggering to be growing food, um, but that the opposite tends to happen with our youth that they find it so healing and so peaceful and like hopeful and just a sense of pride and accomplishment to like till the land, plant seeds, take care of them, nurture them, you know, weed out all the infiltration of, of negativity and, and then like harvest the the end fruit and then be able to like interact with the customer at the farmer's market and see them purchase it and walk home with it and know that they and their families, you know, prepared it and that for full circle that I think is, is really cool. 
The work that you're doing is incredible. And um, we are excited for breaking bread to open that <laughs> <laughs> in our family. <laughs> we are excited to bring it back to you, but we are open for catering. So um, as people are vaccinated and start gathering again for small or large events, um, feel free to reach out to us. Um, it's breakingbreadfoods.com. And um, yeah, we, um, we've got a lot of work that we're looking forward to doing and just appreciate you taking an interest and in being passionate about these issues and, and giving me a chance to share the work with, with your listeners. Well, I uh, really appreciate your time and I'm so glad that you were able to do this and so glad that people get to learn a little bit more about what's happening on the North side because there still is that divide. Uh, yes. We could do a whole, we could do a whole part two on that because there's, there's so much healing on the, um, between the Jewish and black communities that still needs to happen. Yeah. Before our elders aren't here anymore to make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I thank you, Rabbi Jen, as you are called by my children, um, and, uh, look forward to all of the great work that you guys are doing and um thank you again thank you michelle we hope you enjoyed this week's episode of temple talks as always questions and comments can be directed to team moss at templeisrael.com and i will make sure they reach their proper destination thanks again for listening